yeah okay. take what you want from it oh you're recording we're on man dave denniston what's going on buddy i'm good i'm good trying to survive the winter in wyoming wyoming hey yeah man love you, it you grew up around there i did i was born in wyoming uh lived here for about 15 years and now i'm back wyoming why why did your parents move to wyoming or did they grow up there as well uh they grew up there they were involved with uh energy uh, oil and coal and that type of thing for a long time and then my grandfather was actually a professor here at the university so we've always considered our roots to be wyoming so when you when was the first time you left wyoming what was what was that experience the one i really remember is i made my first zones team in 1990 i want to say and went to minneapolis and they had just built the minneapolis pool that we all know about and i thought i had made it you know i was like all right next step olympics <laughs> i'm in the big <laughs> I, city now i'm in minneapolis oh my gosh i got my butt kicked so bad it was embarrassing but yeah. it's one of my favorite pools to this day because it was the first like pool competition i got to to compete in outside of the state and we're actually headed there next week for uh mountain west conference champs so it's pretty oh, cool. cool come full yeah. circle man yeah yeah always lots of circles so why'd you get into swimming um i just was comfortable in the water i, I loved being in the water i still love being in and around water um I tried a lot of different sports growing up and my goofy body, for whatever reason, I could beat the three people I raced against in Wyoming. So I, I thought I was a pretty hot shot swimmer. <laughs> and then, and then you just kept with it after that. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it got the bug. I, I could see myself improving and growing as a person. I, you know, planted the root or the dream of being an Olympian uh, without a clue about what was really involved to do that but once you kind of understand and see the steps in front of you it's like okay well let's check the next thing off the list and get closer and closer to it and um, that was a good part of my growth process as a, as a kid growing up what was your first olympic experience for first memory uh summer sanders <laughs> oh yeah we all had you know first memory of summer sanders yeah 1992 uh i remember watching it on tv and one of course summer was just you know uh very attractive for a young young lad but also somebody that um you just saw her dominate and swim so well and just loved the sport and smiling so much that it really established it and then i also kind of developed an understanding of uh mike barrowman as well there and, and seeing Mike Barrowman swim, I was like, okay. So those two were kind of my first two swimming heroes were Summer and, and Mike. Yeah, that's cool. So the first memory is, is the Barcelona Olympics. That was, that was a fun Olympics, man. Yeah, it was great. And then Nelson Diebel was another one that it was just like, this cat is wild, you know, wearing the American flag bandana and just kind of doing his own thing and learning more about him and his process to getting to those games. Uh, you know, Nelson's one of those people is like, I don't know that I can emulate him because he's so unique, but boy, he's fun to watch, you know? Yeah. 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 Did you always identify as a breaststroker? Uh, I think early on, I think, um, my first couple of years, every time I tried to race breaststroke, I got disqualified usually for a scissor kick. <laughs> and, um, when they, when I learned how to do the kick the right way and the first time I raced and I didn't get disqualified, I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And so then I was like, oh, well, there's so many little things you can do with breaststroke to make yourself better and, and all the drills 
bit. That's where I kind of fell in love with breaststroke was uh, that that type of development of in constant improvement, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now, how did you end up at Auburn University? It was, uh, you were very memorable from the moment you got there. I just don't know how you got there. Uh, well, you better look in the mirror on that one, Hockey, because you were a big, big reason as to how I ended up there. Um, I was recruited by Jimmy Flowers the whole time, and so we kind of had the Colorado-Wyoming mountain connection, and we talked a lot about camping and mountain climbing and that type of thing. And when I heard he would be coaching the breaststrokers, I was like, yeah, I clicked with this guy. Um, and then I came on my recruiting visit the weekend after you guys won uh, NCAs for the first time, and you all had your blonde hair. And, oh, 1997, uh, huh? Yeah, man. We were, and you were still celebrating enthusiastically. And, uh, yeah, I think that went say. on for a few months, not, not, yeah, not just a uh, yeah, week. Yeah, it did. <laughs> it did. <laughs> but it was really hard to say, yeah, I don't want to be a part of that. But I remember sitting on the couch with you just talking and um, really just being like, this, there's something special about this place. There's something special about Brett and his and your your energy and enthusiasm for just the sport in general. To where I was like, this is a place where I, I knew I could thrive and, and and grow and really love every moment. And yeah, man, we had some good years together, you and I. Oh, no doubt about that, man. And and I think uh, you see this with teams, right? And maybe even with your team now that you're you're coaching. You, can, you connect with certain people and you attract certain people. And I think when you meet the right person, those people click for some, mm -hmm. some, some reason. I don't know why. I'm from Australia, Sydney, Australia. You're from Wyoming. But then we meet together in Auburn, Alabama. And from the moment we meet, we click and we just we, we understand each other. We get each other. And, um, and, and it just seems to fit well, right? Yeah. I mean, but even the process, I mean, there were plenty of times where you and I may have had disagreements about pulling on a lane line in a kick set or <laughs> <laughs> something that, you know, obviously we weren't on the same page, but when it came down to racing and supporting each other, that was always there. And I, I think that's what you build and what you understand within your community of any sport is everybody's different, but at the same time, you find those, those common grounds and those areas where you can support each other and help each other uh, achieve your individual dreams and, and goals as a team as well. So your first season with us was the end of 98 into 99, right? <clears throat> yeah. 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 So um, that, that was a fun year too. You know, we were, we were definitely a driven team. What, what do you remember from that experience? Losing. <laughs> uh, no, I remember it was weird because there was so much hype because the NCAs were at, in Auburn that year and as oh, a freshman so that was your freshman year was was the 98 yeah. okay yeah and I and I didn't know what was what to expect or what was going to happen on that one um and it, it didn't go as well as we we planned um it's actually the last time Stanford won a national championship I think so that's fun to remember um <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I remember there's a lot of high expectations you know there was just a lot of expectations and I as a young guy you didn't know what to really expect but you knew there was a lot expected of you and, and that was a, a bit of a process to figure out yeah now you mentioned earlier that we had an incident with a lane line where I was <laughs> I was pulling on a lane line was it was it that was it your freshman year that you called me out on that it was yeah I was a little 
probably a little more arrogant than I should have been on that one. But. Well, I mean, you know, there was obviously some things that were going wrong throughout the season that you were identifying, you were seeing, and you were kind of, mm-hmm. you, you had the, whatever you want to call it, to call, call some people out. I mean, I was a, I was a 22 year old man at that stage. You're an 18 year old boy. And yeah. Uh, and you, you got, you got off. What happened there? Remind me what happened. It was a kick set or something. Well, first of all, I was terrible at kick sets. I hated kick sets. Mm. And I knew I was coming in last all the time, but you weren't the best kicker as well, especially when it was, you know, over a hundred of kick. (laughs) And so I got, I was in the lane next to you and I was kind of racing you to try to keep myself going. And every time we'd get close to the flags, you'd pull on the lane line once or twice to get to the wall. And I was just like, stop cheating and pulling on the lane line. And you were like, you have no business to tell me what to do, boy. You know, (laughs) so. It was yeah, just one of those things where I, I think we got into it a little bit, but you knew where I was coming from, and I was just frustrated because I wasn't fast. And um, I, I think, you know, uh, obviously it didn't hurt our friendship or our relationship, but it was one of those things where I think a lot of freshmen, especially, and I see this, are finding who they are and trying to understand the boundaries and how they fall and where that gray area is and where you can kind of push what you say and do and where you need to just step back and, and learn and, and appreciate where you're at. And I think that was one of those moments for me. Yeah. Well, I think that also there was a, there, there was a problem at that time, right? Like I think we, we thought we were better than we were a lot of us, including myself, mm-hmm. um, or we just thought it was going to happen easily. And, and me pulling on the lane line was part of the bigger problem that year of just, we were taking shortcuts and we were letting things happen. And, and uh, we we're making excuses and and we ended up paying the price for that at, in 98 at yep. Auburn at at our home pool Stanford came in and just whipped our butts yeah and um and we kind of took that one as as, as a as grief as mm-hmm. Jack Roach would say that was grief you know that was that was a lot of grief it was a uh, lot of a lot of celebrating the year before but a lot of grief the next year yeah, and that's what I remember is, you know, there was so much built around the 97 championship being the first championship, and it was talked about agnosium by everyone, including the coaching staff. And as somebody that wasn't part of that championship, it was a little bit frustrating of, okay, I'm glad you guys won it. It's why I'm here, but I want, I want one too, you know? Yeah. And, and it, it seemed like some of that got dismissed a little, but hey, we bounced back the next year and got another one in 99, and uh, those are some of my, that was my favorite year was 99 w- with you. Uh, not just NCAs, but the whole year. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of great stories that came out of that year too. What are, what are the things that you noticed that were the turnaround that, that were different from your freshman year? Uh, everybody was hungry and kind of had a chip, uh, on their shoulder a little bit. And I think we all, you know, back then there was a, a big phrase of no names to no names where nobody really knew who we were, but we could make a name for ourselves. And I think a lot of people started buying into that concept again. Um, And there's, there's planning involved as well. And and that's kind of one of the interesting things about our sport. And and I think about this a lot is what we love about any sport really is the unpredictable moments, not being able to predict what's going to happen, always having that edge of, something great could happen, but not knowing what it is and trying to plan as much as you can around it. I think that's what made you so great is you were so unpredictable in everything you did. <laughs> it wasn't just the water. It was, all right, 
we were always looking out of the side of our eye of, okay, what's hockey going to do now? And, and I think that's kind of one of those things that gave us a bit of an edge is that unpredictability of we could do anything great at any moment. And that's, I mean, you embodied that uh, to something. To, it, it's something I haven't run across very often in my life at all. But, and it wasn't even with swimming. I remember we were in uh, Gainesville, Florida once. And we had finished eating dinner at Ryan's or Golden Corral or one of those god-awful places, you know. And we were waiting outside uh, for the bus to show up. And all of a sudden, you run across the street to where there's a bus stop. And you're sitting on a bus stop bench with a couple of old people. And you're just, like, looking back and forth down the street like, oh, the bus is coming any minute, you know. And we're like, hockey, that's not our bus. He's like, I got it. I got it. Got and a then a memory. bus. Then a bus comes up, and so we can't see you because it was on the other side. So we're standing on the opposite side of the street, and, you know, the bus comes up and drives off, and you're not sitting on the bench anymore. And everybody on the team is just, like, borderline freaking out. Like, did hockey just get on that bus? Like, what, where, where did he go? What happened? And you watched us for a good couple minutes kind of freaking out of, What's Brett doing? And then you popped up from behind some hedges or something behind the bench, like, got all you guys. But those, those are the types of things that I think made you a great athlete is you embrace the unpredictable. And I think that, you know, when it, when it was truly great, it, it almost enriched the experience. Yeah. Well, I got a lot of confidence from my teammates and, and I tried to I tried to reflect that confidence that you guys gave me back to you. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I always tried to lighten the mood, but I always tried to um, deliver when the time was necessary. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and I drew confidence from you. I distinctly remember looking over at my team on a number of occasions and thinking to myself, I don't feel real good right now, but I can't let them know that they have to see strength. They have to see, somebody that's willing to throw down because we're trying to do some special stuff like and and the only way we're going to do it is if we if we do it together and and so i would just draw energy from you guys and kind of reflect it back and so it, it came across as i don't know maybe an arrogance or a confidence that most people didn't have but um i certainly wouldn't have had that without my teammates and i think that's why i loved America so much is because mm -hmm. I was now part of a team. I never felt part of a team in Australia. I always felt like an individual, whereas now we had a group of guys that were all trying to be successful together. And it was really easy to draw energy from that, right? Yeah. Well, and I think one of the, the biggest reason I think we won is what you said just right there in 1999 when we won the NCAA championship. That first day, we had the 400 medley relay at the end. And uh, Mike Bartz was doing backstroke. I did uh, breaststroke. I think uh, Brock Newman was fly. And you anchored it for us. And it was us and Stanford coming into the wall. And the Stanford guy was ahead of you, Brett. I know he was. And somehow you hit the water so hard that I don't think you touched the touchpad. I think you hit the water to the point that the water triggered the touchpad. <laughs> but we just blew up that first night and, like, you know, sang the fight song around the, the block. And I remember seeing the video of it. And in the moment, you're just so excited that you're oblivious. But watching the video of it, you barely pulled yourself out of the pool. And we're all singing and clapping and cheering. And you're bent over the block, like, trying to hold your life together and not puke in the water. And as soon as we finished the fight song, you fell back in the water and warmed down. 
with, you know, 2% of the energy that you had left because you literally gave everything you had. But that was one of those things that you talked about. We all fed off of that and saw that you gave, you, you know, everyone talks about giving 100% or even 110%. I've seen people get as close to 100% and you were one of them uh, for a team. And that's, you know, boy, that's why you do this sport, right? Yeah, well, again, it was reflected back as well. And I think what that ended up doing was giving you confidence and giving you the ability to trust yourself. And then you came up against one of the greatest breaststrokers in history and Ed Moses during that competition. Yep. And, and Ed, yep. was the, Ed was the superstar. Ed, Ed was the guy that was every, everyone was talking about. And, and you <clears> had <throat> your own moment at that NCAA championships. Talk us through that whole event was the 200 breaststroke right it was um well we didn't have a good morning on the last morning of that meet where we were you know the 100 freestylers were we were planning on three or four guys going up in finals and i think we got one or two um backstroke didn't go well it was just it seemed like the meet that we were feeling good about that we were gonna win was starting to crumble between our fingers and it kind of ticked me off again. I kind of had those same feelings of the lane line pull. I was like, well, fine, I'll go do what I need to do. <laughs> yeah. I think I sprinted that prelim 200 breaststroke to get seated first and just say, I'm going to do this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then that night I was able to have fun because I had a, and still have a tendency to probably get a little too intense. And, you know, people would start saying some jokes and, and, and loosen me up. And at that point, swimming at night, it was, a little bit more about having fun than winning it, but I still, uh, I wanted to do everything I could to help the team win. And, and, you know, I got the rings and stuff now, but the memories with the, that group of guys was really, really special and something I'll always cherish. Yeah. But you also did something that I hadn't, I haven't seen much in my life as a swimmer or coach. And, and that was to go and swim to your abilities like maximize your abilities most people don't maximize their abilities um and i think in that race you laid it all on the line but you did it in a way that was intelligent as well but you just had complete trust in your training and mm -hmm. in your ability to win that race like what's going through your head right before that race and then and then your approach to the race was very unique um <laughs> There was a little bit, so one of our teammates, Lionel, uh, before he would race, Lionel Moreau, would stand behind the blocks and when they announced his name, he would put both arms up, like, bring it on. Like, I'm ready to take you all on. Yeah. And I remember seeing that and feeling the way that he looked. And it was kind of a bring it on mentality. But the other thing about growing up in Wyoming is this is a blue collar state and you work hard for whatever you get in life. And having a work ethic and establishing that work ethic is something that you is ingrained in you from a young age. And so I think that was one of those things of, I might not have the biggest hands and feet or the most talent, but I can work as hard or harder than anybody else. And I think it, that was a big part of those things coming together of, I did trust my coaches, I'd improve my technique, and I knew I could outwork anybody. And just putting those pieces together is, is how that kind of came to be. And then you just go out and throw down uh, an enormous first hundred and put, put a couple <laughs> yeah. of body lengths on the field, right? 
Uh, I, yeah, a good amount. It was a come and get me approach. Uh, I didn't sprint it though. The weird thing was, is that easy speed on the front end. I'm, I guess I might've had a little more talent when it came to easy speed, but I never felt like I was pushing myself through the first hundred. And when I found out I was going out and, you know, 53s or whatever it was, I was like, Whoa, that's, that's quicker than it felt. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And then how, how, how'd you, when did you first realize you'd won the race and what was your, what was your reaction to it? Um, I think I turned around and just saw the one next to my name. I remember uh, a previous senior had been at the meet, Adam Jerger, who was in the stands and I saw him losing his mind in the stands as I kind of looked up in that direction. So I thought it had to be pretty good. And um, yeah, then I was just like, okay, we did it. And, and I never felt like it was something I did individually. I always felt like it was something we were doing. And I was part of a bigger piece of the puzzle. You know, I, I was a part of the team. It wasn't anything I did individually. It was the team championship goal being the priority over me winning 200 breaststroke. Yeah, sure. So you established yourself as one of the best swimmers in, in the NCAA. When was the first time you got to represent your country? Well, I was in high school still. I got to be part of the national junior team uh, that went to, to Paris. Okay. What about, um, what about an open, like, you know, full-fledged open USA team? Uh, I want to say World University Games in like 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, the, the highlight, one of the bigger highlights for me was probably going to world championships in Moscow and swimming in the uh, 80 Olympic pool as one of the first American swimmers to, to swim in that pool since we boycotted it. Um, and then the last night being on a relay with Jason Lezak and Aaron Pearsall and Peter Marshall and breaking the world record, that was pretty cool on the national scene. Um, wow. But, you know, there's – you can talk about the accomplishments and everything like that, but when you really look at what – this sport does for people, especially a kid from a town of a thousand people in nowhere, Wyoming, is it just gives you so many opportunities to grow as a person and to um, learn about who you are, you know, and, and that's been one of the biggest lessons for me is that every challenge, everything that's presented in front of you every day, there's an opportunity to discover and develop a better version of yourself. And that's something I've tried to embrace. And it's one of the reasons I went to Auburn. It's one of the reasons I'm here. But, you know, even when I broke my back, as tragic and horrible as that experience looked from the outside, what it really came down to is that's what it was. It was an opportunity for me to discover and develop a better version of myself. And, you know, that, that's what I think a lot of people who get involved with athletics and sports need to understand and embrace. Yeah, well, I mean, if there's a few people who don't know who Dave Dennison is and got to this point of the story and just think you're a successful swimmer, uh, there's a whole <laughs> lot more to the story, right? Uh, I mean, right now you're sitting in a wheelchair. Is that right? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, I don't so, have a name for it or anything, but yes, I am sitting in a wheelchair. <laughs> so how'd you end up in that thing? Uh, you go from swimming on relays with Jason Lezak and Aaron Pearsall and breaking world records and... Uh, yeah. And, and now you're here. What, what happened? Well, you know, like I, I still pursued the Olympic dream and um, did everything I could to make the Olympic team. I, I didn't make it uh, in 2000 or 2004. I, I made finals at trials, but, you know, di didn't get the first or second place. So 
after that, I kind of went through what they called a quarter life crisis. I, I didn't, I only identified as a swimmer at that point in my life, which was a dangerous thing to allow myself to do. And so I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was going to do for a job or anything like that. And, um, thought I would try coaching, but, um, wanted to spend some good times with friends as well. And, uh, in February of 2005, went up to the mountains with a buddy of mine and we were just being guys. We didn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of drinking or anything like that that would have caused something to be stupid, but we were sledding in the sledding in the mountains, sledding like you do when you're a kid, you know, 10, 11, 12 on a little plastic sled. And I lost control of the sled and I hit a tree in the middle of my back and, uh, became paralyzed instantly. But I was, in the middle of nowhere. I'm lucky to be alive, to be honest with you, because how they got me out of where we were was we, we snowshoed in about two miles to, wow. to where we were. So it, it was, it was a scary moment, but yeah, hit a tree, um, broke my back uh, in 2005 and really kind of started an, a new journey and a new breath of life and, um, discovered a lot more about myself than anybody ever should have to. <laughs> yeah. How did you first, know that you're in real trouble when after you hit the tree um well it knocked the wind out of me initially so that's always the worst feeling in the world when you can't breathe you know um yeah. as i started getting air back i was coughing up blood which was you know that's a distinct taste in your mouth and that's pretty scary uh but the thing that really stood out is i couldn't feel anything below my waist like everything below my waist was numb instantly um and so that yeah, that was a pretty good indication that I was in trouble. Uh, my friend Andy that I was with went to go get help and he was gone for 45 minutes, an hour trying to get help. And wow. I didn't know if I was bleeding out internally or what, but I had a little digital camera and I videotaped myself saying goodbye to my friends and family and everybody that I loved. And uh, you want to talk about a humbling experience when, when you truly think you're saying goodbye to people for the last time. Uh, it puts a lot of things in perspective in, ter in terms of what's really important. And uh, thankfully, nobody's ever seen that video. It's been deleted. I'm doing okay. Oh, you uh, deleted it? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Nobody needs to see that. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty brutal, man. But, you know, it, it's, it's one of those life lessons that I, I wouldn't wish on anybody, including people I don't like. But it's something that I value and cherish in my own life at this point. Now you talk about how it was almost a blessing in disguise for you at that point, because you were, you were a certain yeah. type of man at that point. And, and I don't know how you describe it, but I've, I think I've heard you say that. You, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's one way for sure. <laughs> in what way? I mean, you were carrying around some anger and some, you know, what, what did you have? Yeah, going on? I think there was some anger. I think the natural tendency, at least for me at that point was, you know, to really focus on the negative things, the things I didn't have, the you know, Olympic team I didn't make, the job I didn't have, the hair I didn't have. Um, all those things kind of weighed down on me to where I just allowed myself to get into this negative space and just, just be pissed off because things weren't right or perfect. And, you know, calling people out was more of a passion of mine to call people out and show them that they were being wrong rather than helping them improve or helping myself improve and never looking at the positive side of any situation or rarely looking at the positive side of any situation up until that point. Um, and that's the biggest switch that um, 
I think I made mentally was to my attitude of, you know, this is I in a lot of people's eyes, probably one of the worst situations you could be in, in a wheelchair, but why, why, why can't you make it a good thing? Why can't you make it a positive thing? And I really started building on that and appreciating all of the positive things I had in my life from friends like you, family, um, people that cared about me, opportunities, you know, there are opportunities for people with disabilities. Can you hear me okay? Gotcha, man. So tell me about your attitude at that point. You were, you always say that you feel like this was the, the best thing that happened to you. You know, explain that. Well, I think for a long time in my life, I was caught up in all the negative things. You know, the, the job I didn't have, the Olympic team I didn't make, the hair I didn't have. <laughs> yeah. all, all those things that, you know, it's easy to focus on the stuff that is wrong. And um, that just kind of made me a pretty miserable person in a lot of ways. And when I broke my back, I started looking for some positive things on a regular basis and using my mind more because I couldn't move my body in the same way to step back and appreciate everything that I had. And um, really went through a process where, you know, I had as perfect of a body as I could physically make, but realize now that my attitude had always been paralyzed. And since breaking my back and becoming paralyzed physically, my attitude's a thousand times better. I'm happier now. And I really try to look for and embrace all the, the positive things that I have every single day. I mean, there's still garbage we all have to deal with, but, um, you know, appreciating the positive things that are there and not just dismissing them uh, as it's, that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's incredible that you can have that perspective when something like that happens. But um, yeah, I definitely noticed a change in you too. You became a different man after this. And for, I don't know, it was, you can't say it was all for the better or all for the worse or what have you. There were things that I think you needed to cut out of your life, which you did. And then there are other things that you kept. I mean, you, you've still got an incredible work ethic and you still have an incredible um, presence and, and influence on people. And obviously as a head coach now, you're doing some amazing things. Is there anything where you look at it where you're like, you, you you feel restricted like this, I can't do something, you know, that, that you're upset about? Um, honestly, no, not a whole lot. Uh, if there is something, there's three or four other things that would give me the same amount of satisfaction or same sense of purpose that I can do. And mm. so I put my energy or focus into those things. Mm. Um, and so I, I don't get too wrapped up into it there's been a few times i've been pretty frustrated with whatever the case may be but overall um there's always a way and there's always a way to live a better life to be happy to pursue the things that you want to pursue it might take time it might take patience but you know when you start looking for those unique ways to live a life um it, it gives you a new sense of purpose i think yeah. Wow. That's awesome, man. Do you still do some public speaking? Do you still get around or are you so <laughs> tied down to the coaching now? No, I've, I've been doing quite a bit. I actually had one of the biggest honors of my life yesterday. Um, our governor here at Wyoming, Governor Gordon, had a prayer breakfast over at the state capitol and asked me to be the keynote speaker. So I got to do that, which was uh, in front of 400 legislators and senators from the state of Wyoming. And um, that was really a, a pretty cool moment in my life. And then um, I, I still like to get around and talk to the kids, I guess, uh, younger athletes, younger people who, you know, are still developing and kind of finding their own way and, and sharing my message and my story and helping them. So, yeah, I, I still do a good amount of talking, but boy, between coaching and recruiting, time gets 
time gets pretty precious. Yeah. Well, you also had a period of time in there where you went from being, you know, somebody that dreamed of going to the Olympics and then finally getting your chance in a different avenue. Talk to us mm-hmm. about that. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny, but when I was in the hospital, I could barely move. People were like, oh, you should be a Paralympian. You can swim in the Paralympics. And um, I was just, I, I'm trying to learn how to sit up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about swimming. But what I found is, you know, being back in the water, it was one of the things I could do without a wheelchair or any kind of assistive device. It's just me in the water. And I rebuilt my relationship with the water in a way that um, it wasn't about proving myself. It was about having a healthy relationship in an area that I love. And um, being in the water kind of reinvigorated me. And the other part was I loved watching lifeguards freak out when I'd go rolling up to the edge of a pool and throw myself in, you know, from my <laughs> wheelchair. They, they don't like that too much. Uh-huh. But, um, but then I was able to qualify. And, and a lot of people think, oh, yeah, of course you'd be a Paralympic swimmer. I barely made the Paralympic team in 2008. Um, there's still trials for it. Um, it's a selection procedure based on world rankings. And um, by no means was I a shoe in to go in 2008. So when I got to go, it was an honor of my life. I got to finally wear that, that cap that I dreamt about as a kid with the American flag and my name underneath it and swim in the water cube and all those things. So yeah, yeah it, it's kind of neat the way that that came about. That's cool. And then that's how you kind of started your coaching career as well, right? Yeah. Um, again, another tragedy. Uh, uh, the coach that coached me and got me to Auburn, Jimmy Flowers, also coached me to the the Beijing team in 2008. And in 2010, he was in a climbing accident and, and fell to his death, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> and my teammates at the Olympic Training Center that I was practicing with were, at, like I was, at, at a bit of a loss of who's going to coach us, who could, nobody can coach us like Jimmy, that type of thing. And mm. I said, guys, I'll, I'll try it. You know, I, I know you. I, I know swimming. I'll try to be your coach. And they, they embraced that idea of me being their coach and, and went on to find their own success in London. So that's how I got into coaching. Uh, again, another opportunity to – find myself and develop myself into a better version. <laughs> so yeah. that's how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, is there any restriction? Is there any, you know, anything in your way that stops you from being the best coach you can be with able body athletes in any way? Have you found anything that gets in the way of that? Um, honestly, no. Uh, I think, you know, the greatest gift we're given as human beings is what's between our ears. Mm-hmm. And, and mine's still pretty healthy <laughs> between yeah. be, that our, our mind is really what makes us the most dominant unique species on the planet and i've found ways to use my mind better to control my emotions better and um you know also having a staff and people that i work with and trust and they trust me we're able to accomplish what we need to so yeah, yeah. Uh, no no real big li- limitations of any kind uh, but it's all because of the way we approach it mentally, I think. Wow. That's awesome, man. So what else is going on? What's, so what's coming up then? What are you excited about in the future? Uh, well, I've, I've been working really hard on trying to get a new pool built here at the University of Wyoming, and it looks mm. like that might happen. I don't know that it will for sure, so I can't commit to it. But, you know, to have a world-class facility at 7,200 feet of elevation uh, for people to train at, I think we'll set our program and, and create opportunities for a lot of people to become world class. 
So that that's the big goal and the dream that I've been working on the last year or two is getting support and funding for a new pool. Um, and then other than that, I'm happily married now. It took me 40 years, but I finally got <laughs> married. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've really been enjoying spending time with my wife and, and building that relationship and, you know, building more relationships with people in and around the community. And, and that's, that's the really rich stuff in life is just friendships. You know, you've been a big part of my life for over half of it. And I wouldn't trade our friendship, our relationship for the world. Those things are what mean the most to me. And w when I lose a friend, it's more devastating than breaking my back. It's one of the most difficult things for me to go through and whether it be Jimmy Flowers or Ralph Crocker or you know some of the people we've lost um, th those are the challenges in life so that makes me appreciate those those times with friendships uh, around the pool deck and around the world yeah wow that's awesome man do you have any goals to be maybe part of any U.S. Olympic teams or any Paralympic teams anymore or are you, you you're happy with the college scene right now um, I love what the college program is. Uh, one of my frustrations with working with the Paralympic team is everything at that time was geared around winning medals and how many medals you could win, mm. but it wasn't really geared toward personal development and mm. what kind of person is going to win these medals and then be a leader in the community. And what I love about the college system is swimming is a tool to help people find themselves and become a leader. Um, in whatever avenue they pursue after athletics and, and helping them grow as a people is more rewarding than winning a medal. But I also have a very soft spot in my heart for the Paralympics uh, internationally, but especially in the U.S. Um, you know, Jessica Long is somebody that inspired me to get into the water, into coaching, and, and is somebody I really think is one of the best athletes of all time in the United States. And I want to see more people like that come through the pipeline and represent our country at the Paralympic uh, level. Yeah, I mean, I agree on that one. I did, a, I did a couple of clinics with Jessica, and she's an outstanding woman. But she had a feel for the water unlike anybody I'd seen before. Her, her mm -hmm. freestyle technique was almost flawless. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, the way that she feels and holds the water. I mean, you take a camera to that and you could, you could do all sorts of clinics and, and teachings off of her technique. It's, it's gorgeous. And, and she's an incredible athlete too. Well, and one of the neat things is th there was a time at the Olympic training center where uh, coach Marsh came out with his elite group to train at the OTC for a few weeks and we were splitting the pool. I had five lanes and he had five lanes. And after the second practice, Jessica got out and she was like, doing push-ups and sit-ups and all this stuff over in the corner by herself, which is kind of unlike Jess, you know? And so I said, Jess, what's up? What's going on? She goes, ah, I got beat today. I'm like, no, you didn't. You destroyed that set. I'm like, no, not our set. Those girls in the lane next to me were beating me. I'm like, <laughs> you mean the Olympic gold medalist in Marsh's group? And he's, she goes, whatever. Yeah. I was like, the ones with both legs. Yeah. I'm like, it's okay that they beat you. It's like, no, it's not. They shouldn't have beat me. And just having that mentality of, I'm not going to use my disability as an excuse. I want to be better and I want to race the best in the world, regardless of who they are. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And as a coach, as anybody involved with any sport, boy, you hope you run across somebody like that because it's truly rewarding. It's eye-opening. It's rewarding. Um, yeah, just phenomenal. She's a beast. Yeah, she's special, man. She's awesome. Well, that's cool. Listen, uh, had a lot of fun talking to you, man. 
Yeah, we've been jabbering for a while. Are you going to be able to edit some of this down? <laughs> yeah, I'll, be, I'll cut it down. No, no, everyone wants, they want to hear it all, man. I don't edit anything. Just leave it all in. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Well, Brett, I, I am proud of you for taking this step. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. I know that Kobe was a big factor in your life, and, and losing him is what instilled this. But just like me breaking my back, I can see that you are finding a new way to identify with who you are in the world and um what you're doing with this is really special so i'm glad i got to be a part of it but i'm proud of you for taking it on too thanks man i appreciate it man i've i've had really good relationships with a lot of people all, all around the world i mean i've been lucky enough swimming's taken me everywhere and i've met a lot of the top coaches a lot of the top athletes from many generations and had really good conversations with all of them and sometimes I just think, oh, wow, I wish other people could have just heard what you just said, you know? And mm -hmm. so there are people mm -hmm. in my life like you who I'm like, people just need to hear some of this stuff, you know? So oh, for absolutely. me, yeah, I've now got the time and, and the energy to be able to put in a little bit of this. And this is just a side project. I work for Fitter and Faster full time and yep. I love my job, but um, I, I have the ability to work from home and, and be able to chat with my friends on my lunch break. So this is pretty cool. Well, hey, man, go get yourself a burrito. <laughs> we'll do man all right we'll catch up soon good luck at the conference and into ncaa's and all that sort of stuff okay all right hockey thanks man take care see you man love you bye bye bud